Uh, we are glad that you're here. Uh, thank you. If you're new, thank you for joining us. We are in this series called Worlds Apart. And we're in this Lenten series of Worlds Apart. And, and, and we are journeying with Jesus to the cross, but not only to the cross, but to the, one of the most life-changing events in the face of history known as the resurrection. And so we are leaning into the stories of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that he begins to tell us things about the world in which we live, but also the world in which he comes from. And what's so interesting about that is that it seems as though they are completely apart. They're completely separate. They're not meant to be together. And yet God comes to this earth in the form of Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm doing a new thing, a new thing in this world, and watch as I take worlds that seem like they're apart and make them part of one another. It's a beautiful space. It's a beautiful picture. It is the thin place that we call the kingdom of God. See, we are all caught, called as God's creatures to live into this beautiful moment, this beautiful thing, this beautiful existence we call the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so we are trying to understand what it looks like when we take God's world and we mix it with our world and we find worlds apart become part of each other. What a beautiful story. Would you pray for me this morning as I begin uh, God's word? We teach God's word when we bring this message. Lord, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts and that we would learn something new. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start with a question this morning. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you suddenly realized you didn't know what you thought you knew? That's the question I have up here this morning. Have you had a moment in your life where you thought you knew, but you actually didn't know anything at all? I find that the older I get, the less I know. And, and, and there's freedom in that. There is freedom in saying, I don't know. There's something just enjoyable about that. But there's still the army side of me that actually will not admit I don't know something that I don't know. Uh, a perfect example in our life, uh, something, one of our greatest tensions in our marriage that we face is my incompetence uh, of not being able to find what is in front of my face. Conversation goes like this. Nearly every morning, standing in my closet looking for a certain pair of shoes. You think since you wear the same shoes over and over again, they'd be, you know, they'd be easy to find. But every morning, standing in front of my closet, I'd look for my shoes, and i dig through it, and i tear it apart, and i make a mess of the room. And then, inevitably, I will say, hey, hon, have you seen my shoes? And she'll say, yes, I have. And you know the response that comes next. Have you looked in your closet? Yes, I'm standing there right now. I'm looking in my closet. I've literally just torn it apart, and I cannot find my shoes. I am certain they're not here. Are you sure they're not there? At this point, I start to get agitated because, you know, I'm certain that those shoes are not in the closet. But she keeps asking me, are you sure you looked for it? Are you sure they're not there? I am positive, and I'm sure they're not there. But Of course, she walks in patient and kind and loving, and I'm irritated and mad that she's questioning my ability to find things. She walks in, and she moves a tie. I know it's hard to believe that I own a tie, but I do. I only bring it out on special occasions. But she moves a tie, and behind it, or she moves a belt, and behind it are the shoes. Now, may, I may be exaggerating a bit. But I always find that they're in plain sight. They're in plain view. They're behind something that shouldn't be covering them up. And Janelle obviously comes in. She moves it, and she says, right there they are. What were you looking for? 
And in my moment of certainty, I become absolutely humiliated. But here's what, here's what I've figured out. It takes humiliation for me to learn something new. You see, my wife has, has taught me over the last few years what it means to actually look for something, that you actually have to move things in order to find them. And, and what I find so funny is that I have to admit that I don't know what I thought I knew. And in order to understand the new thing that, that, that God wants to do in our lives, we must acknowledge that as well. In fact, this is the, the statement that we're going to be working with today as we unpack John's gospel. Would you all say this with me? Knowing the new acknowledges we don't know what we thought we knew. I need you all to wake up. You didn't say it loud enough. Say it one more time. Knowing the new acknowledges we don't know what we thought we knew. That's right. So this morning, Jesus begins to take us on a journey about this understanding of of unlearning everything we've ever known. And this is going to be difficult for some of us, but this morning we'll be in John 4. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're in John chapter 4. We'll start with verse 4. We may skip a few verses because this is a lengthy passage. It says, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had been given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I love the parenthetical thought here. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw from this well. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. Oh, this is a fun, fun moment here. We talk about awkward moments. Uh, she's asking for eternal water, and then he says, go talk to your husband, who's actually not your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but Jews claim that the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor on Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Hang on with me here. We're almost there. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and truth. The woman said, 
I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus said, and he declared, and he stomped his foot and said, I am the one who speaks to you. I am he. I'm going to skip down to verse 39 because we don't have enough time. If we could fast forward to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me everything that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed with them for days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what he said to you. We have heard for ourselves and we now know that this man is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We have every right to give thanks for the word of God, don't we? Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, John's narrative gives us three descriptors that kind of give us an insight to this woman's reality. Samaritan, woman, and the twelfth hour. I know our Bible say noon, but it actually is the twelfth hour. Now, I don't have time to, 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 to go through what all those mean, but we're going to quickly hit the points. Because we have to understand that what is about to happen is completely radical. The, the Samaritan woman, we, we, we have come to know Samaritan as good. We have uh, the good Samaritan. We have Samaritan hospitals. We think they're good. But, but in Jesus' day, the Samaritans were viewed in many ways like subhuman people. You see, it all came out of a division where there were 12 tribes that split. Two went to the south named Judah, 10 to the north named Israel. And they kind of had this fight that happened between them. In the north, the 10 tribes, there were nations that would come in and they would conquer the, the northern kingdom. And they would take the people away, but there was a remnant of people that remained. And then there were other kingdoms that would come in and they would marry with those pagan countries and pagan people. And so in some ways, the people from the north, Israel, gave up their identity and calling by God in this world to be God's people. Now Judah in the south began to point fingers to the people in the north. You see, the people in the south were stubborn people. It didn't matter who was in charge of them. They were following God regardless of what people told them. It didn't matter how much you beat them. They were following God, and they were not going to follow your customs and your culture and your way. But then they looked at the people in the north, and they said, you are dead to us. Because you've decided that you would intermarry with other people. You have kind of become these Samaritans, almost like this half-breed. You aren't even fully human because you've married people that are dangerous and against God. So Samaritan has a bad connotation. Samaritan people were hated because they sort of gave up their identity. The other thing John tells us is about the woman. Now, many of you know, even in Middle Eastern cultures today, it is not, it's almost uh, forbidden for men to talk to women in public, especially to prolong a conversation, exactly what Jesus is doing today. You know, and I know that you will be punished for having a conversation with a woman. In fact, the Pharisees believed that it was bad to even look at a woman. That's why we have the bruised and battered Pharisees. You've heard of these people, right? They, they believe that they cannot look at a woman, so what they do is they walk around town with their eyes closed, and they run into walls, and they run into people. That's why they're called the bruised and battered Pharisees. But talking with a woman is forbidden. Lastly, uh, it tells us that it was the 12th hour. Now, if you know anything about Jewish customs, the day starts at 6 a.m., so we know if 12 hours later, it's 6 p.m. Now, why would this lady come to the well at 6 p.m. when the day is, in, day is done? 
Well, it tells us. This lady is marginalized. She is an outcast. She has been disenfranchised from a community that has been called subhuman. So she has almost become subhuman in a culture that is subhuman. And then all of a sudden we have two worlds that begin to collide. You have this world of this woman who is absolutely broken, who is now standing face to face with one of the most holy people ever to walk the face of the earth. It is the world where the unholy meets the holy. It is the world where this woman now begins to meet the world of forgiveness and mercy and grace. And the beauty of this story is that Jesus Christ is doing a new thing. This is so revolutionary. This is so out of the ordinary. It is exceptionally extraordinary. It is unforeseen. And here God is in this moment giving life to somebody who is considered to have half of a life. What a beautiful picture. That's what we know about the story. But it's interesting that Jesus comes to this woman today, and he begins to speak into her her life. And to teach her the new thing that he wants to do, he tells her what what she doesn't know. Did you hear that this morning? To teach her the new thing, he tells her what she doesn't know. Now, this is just my perception. A different spin on the passage, I suppose. But I'm not so sure, the more I read this passage, that the passage is really about the woman and Jesus. This is not about the woman at the well. It's about the people who witnessed what happened at the well. In fact, we'll take it a step further. This is what I truly believe this morning, that the conversation is not about the woman and Jesus. It is about what Jesus is doing in the life of John. Did you hear that this morning? See, I've read this passage over and over and over again, and I really didn't want to preach it this week because I had nothing new to say to you. But I had to unlearn the whole passage to understand what God wanted me to say today. And what he is saying is that it is not about the woman and Jesus. It is about what Jesus is doing in John. John, the writer of this gospel, is the brother of Jesus. Now think with me for a minute. This is a guy who has grown up when Jesus was an infant. This is a guy who grew up together as children and played together. They went to school together. They worshiped together. They became teenagers together. Jesus stopped John from chasing girls together. Uh, You know, whatever. But... Just play with me here. But John thinks that he has a special, intimate relationship with Jesus, right? Because he is the brother of Jesus. In fact, he doesn't mind telling you in his gospel that that he is the one that Jesus loves. Now, that's sort of arrogant to just come out in the gospel and say, I'm the one that Jesus loved, not these guys. But he likes to tell you that because he thinks he has this intimate relationship. And so what I think today and what we're going to discover is not so much about what the lady doesn't know, but what John doesn't know. And this morning, John has to admit, he has to admit that he does not know everything that he thought he knew. He has to admit that he doesn't know to learn the new thing that he's wanting to do. And so it's in this moment that John writes this gospel to us, and he begins to give us an insight of the inner struggle taking place within himself. And this is an admission today. I don't know. What a confession. I 
don't know. Jesus four times says you don't know. Here's what we don't know. The first thing. We don't know what Jesus wants. He tells us right in in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him for it and he would have given it to you. You see, I think Jesus immediately dives in the conversation with the woman, helping her understand that it's not what he wants for him, but what he wants for her. I am convinced. I am completely convinced that we do not know what God wants from us. Y'all with me on this? I'm convinced we don't know what God wants. And here's why. We think that our relationship with Jesus is intricate and personal. And I'm going to clarify because I don't want people to hear me wrong. But, but we have been so focused on the intimate. Here's what I mean. We see Jesus in the Gospels uh, about to lose his life, and he begins to cry out to God, and he calls him Father. He calls him Abba, which means almost like Daddy. And we have adopted this mentality that somehow we get to have this intimate personal relationship with God where he is like our dad. Now, I'm not saying that you don't get to have that. You do. But what we have done in the church is we have taken something that was meant to be about intention and less about intimacy. You see, what, what, when we begin to pray the words, our father, it is about intention, not intimacy. Hear, hear that today. The father is about intention instead of intimacy. Say that with me. Father is about intention instead of intimacy. Now, here's what I mean. The language of father, the language of father is about vocation and salvation. And we see that Jesus was not the first one to introduce this father language into the Bible. In fact, we have to go back to Moses in the Exodus where he stands before Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, this is what the father says. Israel is my son. It is my firstborn. Let them go so that they may serve me. This is in Exodus 4. Do you hear this? Do you see this? Father is no longer about intimacy. It is about intention. It is no longer about relationship. It is about a revolution that is taking place. It is no longer about your happiness. It is about the hope that we are called to bring to the world. Father is about freedom. It is about exodus. It is about expectation and apprenticeship. Father is this double double message. It is the message and mission of Jesus, and it is so revolutionary. So like I told you today, this conversation is not about the woman. It's about Jesus or about John. See, what, what Jesus wants to do in this moment is to help redefine for John his relationship with Jesus. Because for John, it has been personal and intimate his whole life. But rarely has Jesus' name been a name of mission. And he is helping John unlearn that it is not about the relationship we have, that when you use my name, this is about a revolution. It is about the new thing that I am doing. And you have to unlearn That it's more than just intimacy. But when you use my name, when we pray our Father, there is intention in it that moves us beyond where we are. 
So I truly believe that John is being refocused from relationship to a radical purpose. From relationship to a radical purpose. Here's the second thing we don't know. The way to worship. We don't know the way to worship. I know, some of you are like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? But again, it's not about the woman. It's about John. You see, when you have grown up as a Jew, you've been told your whole life that you are the chosen people, that you are the ones, you are the individuals that God is calling to save. And I love the conversation. I love the conversation between Jesus and the woman because Jesus says, you don't know what you worship. We Jews know what we worship, but yet... But yet, this language, but yet, is almost like Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I now say unto you. There is going to come a day when all people will stand before me and they will worship me on this mountain in truth and in spirit. How do I say this? What, what Jesus is wanting John to understand is that his salvation is for all people and that worship happens when we are in unity with all people. That everyone, I don't care if you're black, you're brown, you're blue, you're white, you're a drug addict, you're a single mom, you're married, you're divorced, you're old, you're retired, you're young, you're a kid, you're beautiful, you're ugly. Everyone is created in the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he wants to tell John, you are no longer the chosen one, but we are moving into a community filled with God's grace and love to move into the world. How do I say this? Uh, Jesus to John is what the choir is supposed to be to the church. Attunement, my friends, attunement. There is science that has, has in studies that have shown that th they've hooked choir members up to heart monitors. And as the music begins to play and as the, the drum begins to beat and as they begin to sing the rhythms of the song, what they found is that people's hearts are beating in unison. Now think about this picture. What if all people from every different background, I don't care where you come from, have come together to attune our minds and our hearts to God and with each other, and we are beating in one, and this is what he means by to worship the spirit, 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 and in truth. Think about the picture. Spirit. Where do we hear that word pneuma or breath? You have to go back to Genesis when God's spirit is uncontrollably hovering over the chaos. And he grabs the chaos and he pulls it out and he fills it with goodness and love. He fills it with creation. Now we, when Jesus says to worship in spirit, are the same way. That we are to be an uncontrollable force moving throughout history, removing the chaos of injustice of our world and filling it with goodness and love and hope and joy. Amen. I think I just rebroke my broken toe. Ouch. <laughs> Whew. I guess I'm the only one excited today. Could you imagine? An attunement so, so strong that we couldn't help but move as God's people into the brokenness of the world. See, John is learning today what it looks like that not just the Jews, but all people. All people. I love what, what Shane said last week. When you see the word all, that literally means all people are called into the fold of Jesus Christ. 
third thing we don't know. We don't know what we believe. Not only what to believe, but how to believe. If you look in the story this morning, you'll find that it tells us the woman believed that, that, that Jesus was who he was because she told him, he told her something that she thought he didn't know. Did, did you catch that? She believed in Jesus because he told her something that she thought he didn't know. And it goes on and tells us that people began to believe in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Well, that's odd. Why would they believe in him because of her testimony? This is almost like a miracle. If somebody told you something about you that you've never told them, you would think it's a miracle, right? So there's this grand miracle that's happening. But listen to what happens at the end of the story. They say, the whole community says, we no longer believe just because of what you said, Jesus, woman. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Son of God. He is the Messiah. So we no longer believe because of a miracle, but we believe because he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. See, I think this, again, is for John. You just flip back a few chapters. John is with Jesus. I'm not sure he understands Jesus. I mean, if your brother said he was the Messiah, you probably wouldn't follow him, right? Here John is following Jesus, and they go to a, a wedding, and he's like, oh, yeah, here goes Jesus again telling us how great he is, yada, yada, yada. Oh, my goodness. Was, was that wine? Was that water that was just turned into wine? You see, I think for John, it was about the miracle, that the moment he began to believe in Jesus was the moment he performed a miracle. And so John is believing not because he's the Messiah, but because Jesus did something amazing. And Jesus is saying through this story today, you must believe that I am the Messiah, not just a miracle. Are you all with me on this this morning? How many of you don't believe because Jesus has not worked a miracle in your life? How many of you don't believe because Jesus or God has not worked a miracle in your life? You see, we begin to use language like, well, God never showed me. God didn't. He didn't answer my prayer. God feels absent. You know, God is not what I expected. But what if we change the language? What if we change the language from God never, God didn't, God didn't show up, God feels absent, to God is? Now, hang with me here. I know you know this, but do you really? What if we changed all that language to God is who he says he is? What if God is love? What if God is joy? What if he is freedom? What if he is salvation? What if he is the Messiah? You see, it is because God is that we can be. Do you get that this morning? No, I don't. I don't think we get it. Otherwise, we'd be jumping for joy because God is we can be. And that is the miracle. That when we become love, when we become forgiveness, when we become hope to our community, that is the miracle. See, you are looking for a miracle, but the reality is you are the miracle. 
because of the Messiah. Maybe you're looking for something that's not there. Can I just say it's, it's really about the Messiah. This is a revolutionary story for John. See, John today begins to merge the worlds of not knowing and knowing. What Jesus is doing is deconstructing everything that John knows to be true about what he wants from him, what he, how he worships him, and what he believes to be true about him. God is reorienting his life around him, but in a way that he never expected. You see, John had to unlearn everything he ever knew. And to understand the new thing that God is doing, he had to simply admit, I don't So this morning, we're going to say it again. Put it up here. Knowing the new acknowledges we don't know what we thought we knew. Here's what I want you to know today. It's simple. I think it's profound, though. Learning is unlearning. Not the gasp that I anticipated, but oh, wow. Learning is unlearning. I'm going to get to you in a minute. But here's what we need to do. If learning is unlearning, we must unlearn the false narratives that have prevented us from living rich lives of joy and freedom. There are two different groups here today. There are some of you that have been in the church your entire life. There are some of you who think you know there, you, you just think you know everything there is to know about your faith. In fact, there are some of you today who've already tuned out because you've already heard the story about the woman at the well. Yeah, yeah, I know that story. Living water, great, fantastic. Let's go home and eat. In the middle of your, your faith pride, I'm going to call it. You've experienced anything but life. There's, there's a reason why when we come to church and we find ourselves part of the faith, we get into a rhythm that does not give us life. And the reason you don't experience life is not because God isn't here. It's because you've yet to unlearn what you've already learned. There's a reason why your faith is not vibrant. There's a reason why your faith doesn't look foolish like Paul says. In fact, your faith looks pretty reasonable because you have reasoned your whole way through your faith. Maybe your faith is built upon what the church has taught you and not what Jesus has taught you. Maybe you are following practices and rhythms of the church and not of Jesus. And so for those of you who have been in church your whole life, let me just challenge you and say that perhaps you need to begin to take everything that you ever learned, set it aside, and start with new fresh goggles. There's a second group here today. There are many, there are some of you here today who would say, I have learned that I don't like the church. I don't like Christians. I don't like fake Christians. I don't even like real Christians. I don't even like Jesus. I'm glad they're here, whoever said that. I'm glad they're here, yeah. But here, here's, my, here's my proposition to you. 
Could you just for a moment, could you just for a moment say, I don't know? Because the reality is, if you have perceptions about our faith and about Christians and about people in the church that have been falsely given to you, let me challenge you to experience something different and new. So I need you to unlearn everything you've ever known to be true about the church and about people and about Christians and about Jesus, and I need you just to start from ground zero and say, today, I confess that I do not know. So I want to do something different. I I think it will be a moment of freedom. Would you stand with me? I want you to confess this morning. This is going to be weird, right? I want you to hold out your hands like this. I know, it's weird. Even those who don't believe, come on now. I want you to say these words. I don't know. Say it again. I don't know. One more time. I don't know. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, I don't know. Look at your other neighbor tell him, I don't know. Isn't this beautiful? Hey, keep your hands up. This is a moment of confession. You see, what we're doing right now together is exactly what worship is meant to look like. It is an attunement of our lives to God to say, we don't know. We are at the end of ourselves. I thought I knew everything there is to know about faith. I thought I knew there was everything there is to know about faith, but I really don't. So this morning we confess. We don't know. And may your confession be an alignment. May it be the beginning of an attunement. May it be the beginning, as John would say, believing. May it be the beginning of believing. Y'all may be seated. This morning we're going to do what we always do, and that is to receive the goodness of God through our table. For those of you serving communion, would you come forward this morning? One of the things that we do here is we respond to the message that has been given us. Maybe you've never taken communion because it is a bit odd eating the flesh and blood of Christ. I get that. But maybe you need to unlearn what you've already known to be true. See, we believe that this is a moment where God's love and his grace will meet you. And if you need forgiveness today, if you need a new start today, if you need to start over and fresh, this is the place to do it. Everyone is invited to God's table. We believe that if you are seeking God, if you're running after God, you may not have it figured out, but this is the place for you. That is the beauty of Easter Sunday, is all of us, as we said last year, invited to dine at the King's table of grace. So this morning, would you come and receive the body and blood of Christ? Lord, we give thanks. We give thanks for the cross. We give thanks for the resurrection. We give thanks that you are a God who comes and does something new and asks us to acknowledge that we don't know. So today we, we admit we don't know. Today we submit our lives to you. Today we, we stand before you and a- admit that we are at the end of who we are, that we are absolutely nothing. That is what Lent is all about. But we pray for your sustaining presence. We pray for your sustaining love. And we thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you for this opportunity to eat. In Jesus' name.